Hi, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. How's everybody doing? You feeling okay? Uh, Somehow with the weather getting warmer, for me, life is somehow getting more okay. And I'm very appreciative of that. I wanted to tell you a couple things before we get into today's guest. I've got a couple speaking gigs coming up and I'm advertising these since they are both online. So if you are someone who is psychologically inclined and or needs CEUs, you might be interested on June 3rd, I'll be speaking for the Illinois Higher Education Center on Trauma and Substance Abuse. And then on June 16th, for the New Hampshire Alcohol and Drug Abuse Counselors Association, I'll be speaking about the Wounded Healer. OMG, you've never heard me talk about that before, right? (laughs) If you want to join, we will have the links in the show notes for you so that you can find your way to those events. Also, just wanted to tell you some more ways that you can connect with us. On Instagram, we are at Head Heart Therapy. On Facebook, you can find us at Head Heart Therapy as well and at Wounded Healer, and that's W-O-U-N-D-E-D-H-E-A-L-R. I have to like slow down so that I can say it correctly since it's not spelled right. Also, if you are a fan and appreciate the podcast and would like to donate to us monetarily, you can do so at Patreon and you can just find Wounded Healer by putting you typing in wounded healer or it's at wounded healer h-e-a-l-r again same i'm just totally regretting that i did that anyway (laughs) let's get into today's episode so today we are speaking with dr craig heacock now craig is an adolescent and adult psychiatrist and addiction specialist in colorado In addition to producing and hosting a psychiatric storytelling podcast called back from the abyss He is a co-therapist in the phase three trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Dr. Heacock has a particular interest in the use of ketamine and other psychedelics to treat severe mood disorders and PTSD. He's a graduate of the University of New Mexico School of Medicine and did his psychiatry training at Brown University. So you're going to listen to this episode and then about three, four days from now. I can't remember exactly when it's going to happen, but we are also going to be sharing an episode of Back from the Abyss on our Conversations with a Wounded Healer feed. So if you like what Craig has to say, make sure that you check your feed again in a couple days because we're going to have an episode of Back from the Abyss to share. All right. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Craig Heacock. Hello, Craig. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi, Sarah. How are you? It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. You are a new friend who randomly reached out to me. And normally I don't have time for making new friends (laughs) lately. But now I was like, well, coronavirus, all I need is connection. And and I listened to your show, which we'll talk about. And I'm just I'm just excited to have made a new friend and to be able to share your work with our listeners, too. Yeah. One of my big pet peeves in life is people who don't get back to me and I emailed oh, I you know, right? to reach out to you. And I think you responded in like 24 minutes. Potentially, yeah. Something with like, heck yeah. And I said, okay, this is going to work. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell everyone that though. Okay. <laughs> because now everyone's going to be like, why doesn't she write me back within no. 20 minutes? <laughs> it's because coronavirus, guys. I have a little bit more flexibility in my schedule these days. <laughs> All right. Don't expect that from Sarah. Please don't, please don't, please don't. But anyway, so why don't you tell listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do? I am an adolescent and adult psychiatrist and addiction specialist in Fort Collins, Colorado. 
I have a podcast called Back from the Abyss, which actually has some overlap with yours, which is why Mm -hmm. I reached out to you because I really like your podcast. And I also am doing some interesting work. I do a lot of uh, work with ketamine, both intramuscular and intravenous ketamine to treat depression and PTSD. And then I also am part of the MAPS-funded and run uh, MDMA trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And that's been a really fascinating thing, which talked about a little bit about on the podcast. So we could explore that as well, if you're interested. Yeah. Well, first, tell us a little bit more about the podcast. And I'll tell listeners, I I listened to literally, I think, like 10 or 15 seconds of it and was already super hooked and intrigued. So you're going to love it. We're going to share episodes with each other's audiences in, in the near future. But before then, you can check it out now. So tell people what they can expect when they go to Back to the Abyss. Yeah. Back from the Abyss came out of really two places. One was the woman in episode one, which is called Strawberries. She, for years, has been saying, I want to tell my story. I want to tell the world that there's hope and that Mm. they can do this. And how do I do it? How do I do it? And we kind of went around and around. And then I started getting obsessed with podcasts. And then early, (laughs) yeah, in early (laughs) 2019, I finally committed with a good friend who's my sound guy and music guy to to do a podcast. And I thought, oh, and it has to be this. It has to be people telling their stories mm-hmm. of hope and healing. And so she was the first one. And I think so part of it, the genesis was to help people share their hope. And it also was for me because mm. I'll call myself a wounded doctor. <laughs> the wounded physician my, as yeah. Young coined it yeah. initially. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of losses and vicarious trauma in my practice. And I think starting back from the abyss was also a way for me to put out just balloons of hope into the world and to to remind Mm -hmm. myself that people do get better and people heal and people do the hard work of therapy. And it's so easy for us to folks, you probably do this too, Sarah, when we're going home from the office to think about what didn't go well or who, who didn't show up or just the the bad stuff and the mistakes we make and the empathic failures. But it's so important to remind ourselves, no, actually people do also get better. Mm -hmm. And so Back from the Abyss has been a project to help people share their stories of hope and also to fill my hope cup up so I, I can keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I feel so similarly about this show in terms of, you know, definitely putting it out there to help others, but also the same amount to help myself and not just hearing stories of resilience from people, but I get so much wisdom out of all my guests and these conversations are truly healing for me. So I totally am on the same page with you. Why don't you share with us how you came to become a psychiatrist specializing in addiction and trauma? Well, this is my third career. And um, when I was a kid, I always thought I wanted to be a doctor in just some vague ambiguous way. But then I started down the path to be a PhD and professor. I taught high school for a while, started down the PhD Mm. path that looked very hopeless. And so (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to spend years and years in graduate school and Mm. end up somewhere marooned in Nebraska. Sorry to... (laughs) Sorry to Nebraskans. (laughs) (laughs) Nebraskans were harmed in this episode. And then I had another, after teaching, I worked in environmental, uh, environmental education project for a while. But I came to it in my late 20s after I read a book called Listening to Prozac, and it just Hmm. blew my mind. And up until age 28, I literally had not taken a psychology class. 
I'd not thought about mental illness, even though my mom was a therapist and I grew up around it. Mm. But I just got completely fascinated. In fact, I quit my job. I took a minimum wage job at a psych hospital working the overnight shift as a tech on the adolescent unit. And I called my mom. I said, mom, I got to be a psychiatrist for sure. And she said, oh, I always thought you would be a psychiatrist. So why didn't you tell me? She said, (laughs) said, "You you had to find that yourself. And I think what I loved about being a high school teacher was the connection with the kids and the relationships and watching kids grow over time. And that's part of what psychiatry is, except I just have one person at a time, not 20. Right. <laughs> so in some ways it's easier. In some ways it's harder. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I went into psychiatry fascinated with people and their stories, but not really, not from a trauma perspective, not from a wounded perspective. My wounding came later. So I went into psychiatry, much more interested in therapy and psychopharmacology and mental illness. But as I got into it, I realized all these trees that I'm treating, these beautiful people, these trees, they have very damaged root systems. They have trauma. There's so much trauma. And so, and then my trauma started. And again, that's part of the podcast has come out of that in that mm-hmm. I've had now eight suicides and two murders and, oh my God. and a whole lot of other mayhem. And you know, I've talked about this on my podcast that I, I, I think of myself as pulling around a trauma tail. Like it's mm. just like, bag of, you know, a lot of people are carrying around their childhood baggage or their childhood trauma. Fortunately, I I grew up in a loving, stable home, but I am carrying around a lot of trauma from my work. There's a time in third year medical, the end of third year medical school, which I'd heard about before, but it was interesting to watch it, where everybody does their third year rotations and about a third of the class says, shit, being a doctor means taking care of sick people. (laughs) Oh, oh no, and it's true. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm oh, screwed. No. And then, you know, they become, you know, um, radiologists or other specialties where they don't have to really deal with sick people. Hmm. But that, you know, that one of the things that you really realize is, yeah, we take care of really sick people. And the people I take care of, a lot of them have very severe mental illness, and some of them are terminal and more are going to die. I mean, I've had eight suicides so far. I'm sure more to come. And a lot of my work as a wounded doc is trying to figure out how not only I deal with all these deaths and trauma that I still carry around with my patients, but I know more is coming. Mm -hmm. I had an attending in residency say, look, if you want to avoid suicides, don't treat sick people. Yeah. He said, but if you want to treat sick people, you're going to have suicides. Right. So a lot of my work as a in my own sort of evolution as a doc is trying to figure out how can I take care of people in the greatest pain and not sink myself. And at times I've deeply sunk. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Years earlier in my career where I barely made it through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, not I think, I know that, that research says that the earlier we are in our career, the more chance we have to burn out because we haven't built that internal resilience and that internal, what's the word I'm looking for? There, I mean, we have to be impartial in some ways, right? It's it's our our careers when we're when we're doing therapy with clients. It's just so there's this fine line between impartiality and deep care and empathy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like ideally, the longer you practice, the more the wiser you get, the more competent, mm-hmm. hopefully, uh, experienced. But you also can't, I don't, if you really care about your people, I don't know how you can't carry some of that pain. 
we all have to find a way to do the work to to lose people to either just have them disappear from therapy or actually have them die or have other horrible things happen and how do we move forward and keep trying to help people and not get just dragged down by the awful losses yeah it's interesting too i wonder if people have said this the same to you i i get all the time if i'm you know, at a party or something, people are like, what do you do? Like, oh, I work in addiction. I'm a therapist. Now. Oh, that must be so hard. And I always, I, I'm always kind of annoyed by that response because like you said, there is so much joy. There is so much healing. And yes, of course, we like any, any person working in therapy, you're going to be dealing with losses, but the joys are why we're in it. Yeah. And everybody's job is hard. Yeah. Being a, being a kindergarten teacher is hard. Being a oh coal miner is hard. You couldn't pay me enough to do kindergarten being, teacher. Being a long haul trucker. I mean, everybody, I think it's just that the unique, unique nature of psychotherapy and mental mm-hmm. health is that, is that people are sharing their deepest, darkest stuff, which is, I think, what makes it so powerfully heartwarming and meaningful for us. But it also, mm-hmm. you know. Mm hmm. My wife's a therapist too, and a lot of nights I come home, how was your day? And I think, I don't even know how to begin to answer that question. Yeah. I mean, it's just so complex. There's just so beautiful things happen and hilarious things happen and crushingly sad things happen. I mean, so much happens in one day. Mm-hmm. And I love my work, but yeah, it's intense. It's, yeah. My, my, I have three daughters and they, they've said many times, dad, it must be so boring. All you do is sit all day and talk to people. Is that so boring? Oh my God. <laughs> I say, I've said to them, some days I long for it to be more boring because right. it is not boring. No, it is. No, it may be a lot of things, but boring is not one of them. Right. And how are your clients responding right now with the, with the pandemic? Yeah, I've had a few text me say, please don't die, which was very sweet. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That like that level of attachment that they have yeah. to you. That's wow. Yeah, that's really sweet. I have a lot of people who now have no income. And I think mm. I'm actually hearing more of that from my patients, mm. fears of economic collapse than I am fears of the virus. Now it's we're in Fort Collins. It might be different if we were in Manhattan. I mean, a lot of people are sick in Colorado, but I think right now what's scaring my people the most is how can I pay rent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so interesting to watch my clients in different circumstances responding to different things. Like my my business owning clients are are really concerned about the economic stuff. My clients who are parents are really struggling to hold the family together right now. You know, it's just so... Oh, and I, I posted a meme the other day that was that was a person holding a very scary looking possum and over the possum it said me and the person it said it said my therapist who's also go who's also going through a mental breakdown trying to hold it together for me. Oh. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that kind of feels right some days. <laughs> yeah. I do feel grateful that we get to keep doing our work. I mean, it's, it's definitely mm-hmm. dialing yeah. back, but at least we can do video sessions and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still doing 
urgent ketamine sessions in person for people who are suicidal mm-hmm. or really mm-hmm. in the deep hole. Mm-hmm. You know, we're wearing masks and gloves and right. I, feel like, I feel like a real doctor wearing masks and gloves. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that's a good segue into talking about the work with MAPS. I, I know that the audience will be really interested to hear about the use of psychedelics in, in therapy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I work at the Fort Collins study site. I think I think there are 12 or 13 MDMA PTSD study sites in North America. So the study's been going for about two and a half years. It's now sadly on hold with the virus as everything's sort of on hold at the moment. Yeah. But just some background. So MDMA was used in the underground therapy community back in the 70s and early 80s, both for trauma work and couples work. Back then it was called Adam. That was the name hmm. for it. And there was a lot of anecdotal evidence that it was very powerful treatment. And when it was made illegal in the Just Say No Nancy Reagan years in 85, a number of therapists went to D.C. and begged the and pleaded that the DEA not make it Schedule 1, which would make it impossible to do right. to use. But the DEA overruled their own judge twice and said, no, it's Schedule 1. It can, hmm. It's too dangerous, has no medical use, can't be studied, can't be used. But one of the people who testified was Rick Doblin, who went on to form MAPS. Specifically, back then, he started it in mid-80s to gather the money and research to show the DEA and the FDA that, that MDMA was a really powerful medicine and should be used for trauma. And so now, here we are 35 years later, and it's happening. And so Rick's dream has come true that we're in the final... Stages. So it takes three, what are called phases, three phases of research to get a medicine approved. So a phase one is safety. Phase two is efficacy in a small population. And phase three is efficacy in a larger population, double blind, placebo controlled. So about half the people in the study are getting placebo on their all day trauma sessions. So it's been really powerful, meaningful work to do this. And if anyone wants to get an inside look, if they go to Back from the Abyss and listen to my episode called MDMA and the Inner Healer, mm-hmm. that is a beautiful account of the first guy I worked with in the MDMA study. Now, he actually was in the open label part of the study, which means we knew he was getting MDMA and he knew. Mm-hmm. So now the rest of the study is double blind placebo. So it's been the only frustrating thing. Well, the frustrating thing for me is I'm such a doer. I'm such an enthusiast that research goes so slowly. Oh my God. And, you know, it's just the pace of research is agonizing for me. So I'm glad it's just a little bit of what I'm doing. You know, I devote maybe a half day to a day a week to for the study, but super meaningful work. And I think, yeah, if MDMA continues to show the promise that it showed in phase one and phase two, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change trauma treatment forever. Yeah. Yeah. And am I understanding right that if you are working in the study that you also have to partake as well? You have to have your own MDMA sessions? Yeah. All the therapists are not required to have an MDMA session, but they're strongly invited to. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to tell us about yours? Yeah. Well, actually, I didn't do one for the study because I had a number of MDMA experiences earlier in my life. So mm-hmm. I had I had a good sense of it and it was a pretty big time commitment to do it. Oh, so I yeah. thought I thought they should spend their time and money with therapists who hadn't experienced it because I felt like I, I understood it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say this and this, you know, my own experience with it echoes what we see in the study is what MDMA does 
sort of physiologically, psychologically, is it cranks cranks fear all the way down. Yeah. Cranks trust up and turns up compassion. That's because a beautiful think, way to put it. Yeah, thank you. Because if you think about what blocks people from doing trauma work, well, the first thing's trust. Mm-hmm. How because trust is broken in PTSD. And to even begin to trust your therapist could take months or years. With MDMA, it might take an hour. Right. Because literally that probably oxytocin mediated trust happens very quickly. Usually in the first session, it would be unusual if it didn't happen at least to some degree. Um, Secondly, is fear that the reason so many people can't do or struggle to do trauma work is so awful because how do you walk right into your back into your rape? How do you walk right back into Iraq? How do you do that? There's a lot of ways, you know, that we go around that with somatic therapy and EMDR. I know there's a lot of cool therapies that get around that fear problem, but that is still a huge issue. Whereas MDMA just turns fear down again within an hour. Fear is if not all the way down, it's turned all the way off. And then finally, compassion, because what do trauma therapists spend so much time and energy is trying to help people see it wasn't your fault. Right. You have 0% guilt. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You were a child or you were alone on the street or you were sent to fight for your country or whatever it is. But every, at least every trauma patient I've ever worked with always feels guilty and ashamed. And in that uh, episode, that that was what I think resonated with me so well is that the client said he sort of kind of had a cognitive understanding that it was, I think he was sexually assaulted as a child, right? A cognitive understanding that it wasn't his fault, but the MDMA work, there was then an embodied understanding and a, and a real acceptance and, and embracing of recognizing that it wasn't his fault. It yeah. was so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, again, you think of trauma being held in your body. In that episode, Mitch talks a lot about when he made specific quantum leaps in the therapy, he always describes it in somatic ways. Oh, wow. Feeling feeling the 15-year-old sealed in his chest. You know, he talks at the end of the episode about how, how he woke up every morning for years wanting to die. And it turned out just because he woke up every morning on his back in the same position that he was assaulted in. And he hadn't put that together, that literally the body body memory of waking up triggered that trauma and that suicidal thinking from the moment Mm -hmm. he woke up. And we worked on that too with him, did some cool work. So yeah, if if you just think of that, that's the way I think of MDMA, dial down fear, dial up trust, dial up compassion. And again, I don't know if you know this, Sarah, but you know, MDMA was called ecstasy when it was starting to be sold, but it was the original name was empathy. A lot of people don't know that. Oh my God. No, I didn't. They were going to originally call it empathy. These guys in Texas who were making it and selling it at the bars, but they decided that empathy wasn't a very sexy name and ecstasy was much more marketable. Even though empathy is a much more accurate description, I think of what happens with MDMA. Wow. Because again, if you were to come and sit through one of these sessions, People are not in ecstasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes people are having a, a positive experience, but it's very intense. But they're having an unbelievably empathic experience, mm-hmm. both with themselves and with the the younger version of themselves. Often going back, because a lot surprise, surprise, most people in the study have childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. There's, there, there's a shocker. So, and another thing that's been really interesting to me is, and again, trauma therapists know this, is that. As you go in, you see that what's the presenting trauma 
that's just the inner layer. And so in our work with people, we're finding out that maybe the index trauma wasn't the index trauma or yeah, the index trauma was awful, but it's because of the developmental or attachment wounds early yep. in childhood, you know, the damage to the root system of the person that then made the index trauma so mm-hmm. awful. Well, and that's one thing I wanted to note for listeners, because as we're talking about uh, drugs, I want to be very mindful to let people know we don't think that you should go out and use ecstasy on your own to heal your trauma. What's so important is doing it in relationship with a therapist in an environment where it's controlled and you have that relational experience, right? Right. Clearly, you know, MDMA is all about context, as as are, I think, all the psychedelic medicines. Right, that yeah. Mm-hmm. They can be used to connect with nature. They could be used to dance all night. They could be used to um, allow you to put on eye shades and music and sit in a room with two therapists and do an eight-hour deep dive into your childhood trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like they, They're so different. I and mean, what they, they're opening things up, but it's totally context-dependent. And we spend a lot of time in the MAP study with the preparatory sessions, getting ready, people ready for what's going to happen. And then arguably even more importantly, in the integration sessions afterward, mm-hmm. we spend many hours going over the themes that came up and processing. Because yeah, there's great gold that's dug up on the experimental days, but boy, the integration sessions, that's, you know, that's the hard work of gardening, of really making sure stuff grows. Yeah. And and that's what I've specifically heard about all of the psychedelics, that if one is going to partake in using psychedelic medicine, integration is a step that cannot be skipped. Yeah. And even in my medium to high dose ketamine sessions for people's severe depression, I tell them, I say, look, think of this as a truckload of really great compost that we're dumping into the garden of you. (laughs) I want... I want, so I want you, you need to go home and you need to work the garden. You need to get off the porch. You need to get the seeds. You need to plant them. You need to do the weeding. You need to work the garden of you, which translates to, you need to get up in the morning. You need to get dressed. You need to brush your teeth. You need to walk your dog. You need to stop being, you know, a depressive house cat, which is how most, you know, what depression tends to turn us, you know, from dogs into cats. And I often, you know, often write, I always give instructions to people. I'm like, you are not a cat. Like you're living like a cat, you're not a cat. Right, like we right. are social tribal primates. And you know, I think as people heal from depression, they become more connected and they wag their tail and they go outside and they they act like dogs. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm not the, I'm not trying to diss cats. I love cats, but but you know, my, my the more depressed people get, the more they act yeah. like cats, kind of asocial and sleeping on and off all day and isolative and yeah, everything on their terms. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you a potentially controversial question, because I have a feeling that we're going to have a similar viewpoint on this. So treatment resistant depression. So well, well, depression period, right? So any anything that, you know, if we're depressed or we're anxious, we've been told for a really long time that it's your neurotransmitters that aren't doing the right thing. And so you need to take medication. So the neurotransmitters do the thing and then you'll be fine, right? One of the things that I've always thought and also found joiners with me in NARM is it's not necessarily like, oh, you're born with this lack of neurotransmitters. It's whatever happens to you changes the brain, which then changes the neurotransmitters, right? And so some of this presentation of depression that we're seeing, it's not just it's not just this thing happening in the brain, but it's also the way that the person is relating to their depression or relating to their anxiety or, or what that is. And and that sounds to me like why, you know, using psychedelics in therapy is so helpful because like you said, if the compassion can be turned up, 
and the fear be turned down, that's changing their relationship to the depression, which then can lead them to acting more like a dog, as you said. Yeah. And to the therapist. Because again, mm. the, the, the therapy relationship is one of the most powerful healing elements there is. Anything that can crank up the trust and compassion there. Let me go back to something I'm forgetting yeah. you just asked about. What was the first part of that question? <laughs> so essentially talking about the role of neurotransmitters oh, yeah, and, okay, yeah. and the yeah, recovery yeah. from depression. Yeah. So the word depression is so problematic in many ways because first of all, it's widely used to mean all sorts of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even if we talk about in mental health, we talk about no clinical depression. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually did a podcast episode on this called What's the Deal with Depression? But I think, and you bring up a great point, Sarah, depression is so multifactorial. So let's just talk about ketamine. Ketamine seems to work, in my, in my opinion, the best on people who have bipolar spectrum depression, who mm. are in a very fatigued, hypersomnic, oversleeping way. Like mm. that is a home run. Mm. That, but what percentage of everybody who's depressed is that? I don't know, some teeny sliver of the pie. Right. And I think it's really important to recognize that depression is a final common pathway. And there's so many ways you can get there. You can get there through attachment trauma or physical sexual assault or genetic predisposition or low testosterone or progesterone plunging in postpartum, hypercortisolemia, or I mean, I could go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think we have to be so careful when we, yeah, depression is not about neurotransmitters. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But it's actually, it's tempting to say, oh, depression is all about trauma or it's all about, it's not all about anything. It's, it's a syndrome and there's so many ways to get to that. And I think one of the huge challenges we have as therapists and, and mental health clinicians is trying to break down. People may have all the classic symptoms of depression, but all that tells us is that they've now reached this hole of depression. But how did they get there? That totally matters. <laughs> yeah. it, utter, it utterly yeah. matters because it determines whether you should do somatic therapy or lamotrigine or a yoga class or mm -hmm. MDMA or whatever. I mean, it matters how you got to that well. Uh, so you're right. We throw around, I, I just did that, this idea of treatment-resistant depression, which is actually a completely ambiguous term, which basically means, hmm, what we've done hasn't worked. Well, right, right. Yeah. So but, then it, it, but then it puts a, a negative label on the patient and yeah. the client and they walk around then and that intensifies the negative relationship they have with themselves because this there's this feeling of like, I'm broken, I can't be fixed, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I try to avoid saying that with patients. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I, I usually, I use a lot of metaphors with people. You know, they'll call me, do you think it's time to do ketamine? And I'll say, well, well how deep in the hole are you? Like, is there any light at all? Mm, you know, people mm -hmm. are like, there's no light. Like, okay, yeah, maybe. You know, or, <laughs> it might be or, time. <laughs> or they say, oh, I'm still walking the dog and I'm still shopping. And, you know, I'm going to my job. Like, okay, yeah, you're not there yet. But tell me when you can't get out of bed. Then then we'll do something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd love to shift into the conversation about healing in terms of, of your own work. Would you Would you use that label for yourself? Are you a healer? I when I think of the word healer, I do. He when I think of the word healer, I, I think of I think of my acupuncturist, Christy. She's mm. a healer. She's like a twelfth level magic user. Nice. Yeah. Like if you're playing a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, you'd want her with you because she's so intuitive and almost kind of clairvoyant, and you can mm. tell her what's mm -hmm. up, but you almost don't need to. Like she, yeah, I think of her as a healer. 
I think of myself as sort of a advocate slash coach slash expert, mostly, and therapist. Because psychiatrists have an interesting role where we're trained in the medical model. So when we meet people, we're thinking like, do you have endocrine stuff? Do you have this? Do we need to look at circadian rhythm? Do you need a sleep study? Do we need to look at your stool? But then also we're trained in different psychotherapy modalities. So I remember when I was first learning psychiatry that this is too much. Like, how do you, how am I going to balance thinking about people's Mm -hmm. cortisol and testosterone and their circadian rhythms versus also like, wait, what sort of countertransference am I having towards you? It just seems like a lot to balance. So that to me is one of the really interesting challenges is that you have to run a lot of programs simultaneously to sit with people. But that said, yeah, my, so my acupuncturist is a healer. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do for sure identify with, as I said earlier, the, mm-hmm. the wounded doc or the wounded physician. And as I said before, I didn't come into this. I felt very fortunate. I came into this with a loving, stable childhood. But boy, the the trauma started right away. I had my first suicide in residency, an adolescent kid who hanged himself in his front yard so his parents mm. would find, find him when he walked out. Oh, that, was my, that was my first one. And by my third suicide in the late 90s, that was around 98, I was going downhill fast. I was drinking too much and falling into substance abuse and I couldn't sleep. And I remember just crying in my office thinking, I can't do this. I can't do this. I've already, you know, I'm a brand new psychiatrist. I've already had three suicides and, and then I had a murder. And I thought, well, I just have to power on through because that's what oh. that's what I do. So yeah. I just pretended things would be fine if I just worked harder, if I hmm. called people obsessively and worked harder and worked longer hours and go, go, go and just pour more kerosene on the fire. And I just ended up in 24-7 panic mode. And yeah, by the, you know, by 93, I was in full-on meltdown mode. And then I realized I just had to change everything and start working on me. Yeah. Actually recognize, hey, I need some help. I need to stop doing things the way I was doing, which was basically bury my head in the sand and just hit the accelerator and pretend everything was fine. So... I mean, a big marker that things have changed now that I'm much more um, cognizant that I need to take care of myself and is that I've had, I think, four suicides in the last four years. And while they've each been very painful, I had one murder, that was even worse. I'm handling them much differently. I think I, you know, early in my career, I thought if I worked hard enough and cared enough and I could save people and I, I could avoid this. And then I realized that, yeah, my delusional optimism and inflated sense of self was going to destroy me. And I just needed to realize people are going to die. I mean, if yeah. I'm going to treat sick people, some people are going to die. And that actually was a huge weight lifted. To, and yeah. the other thing I've realized is, and another thing is that the people that I've worked with that I was sure were going to kill themselves, none of them have, knock on wood. So I have had, I didn't see any of them coming. And actually, at first, when I was back in such a dark place, it scared me to death because I thought I need to be able to predict or have a crystal ball. Yeah. But the healthier me realizes, no, I just need to have, that's actually an invitation to humility to say, yeah, you don't know. You don't know who's going to kill themselves. All you can do is just try to bring your best and your, you know, your most present, caring self and stuff is just going to unfold as it is. And that same idea that scared me to death earlier in my career now is like, oh, 
Yeah. I don't have, I don't have to save everybody. Right. And, I, and I, you know, it just, I, I used to think I had to, I don't know what I was thinking, but I did. Well, I think, you know, one, one of the questions I was going to ask you is in terms of, you know, this, this thought that you had to power through, I, th- I think that is also related to this idea that you had to save everybody. And I'm curious if you can identify where that came from for you. Yeah, no, I know where it came from. Well, it came from a couple of places. Is one, I think I'm a competitive runner and I've been a competitive runner since I was 11. And in running, as in, you know, competitive cycling or swimming or gymnastics or so many things, you have to suffer. In fact, mm-hmm. he or she who suffers the most often is rewarded the most. And so mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. from a young age, I've, and that's been a great confidence builder. Like I, I know how to suffer. And I've yeah. often like joked about that or, or my running friends, like, oh, yeah, we know how to suffer. But it's true. I, we, I've been, just, had that pounded into me. I pounded into myself that like I... I know how to suffer. Like it, and the harder it gets, I can push through it. Because to quit is to give up, is to fail. And so I think yeah. for the same reason that when I first ran New York Marathon I, at mile 22, I was crawling on my knees on Fifth Avenue in New York, oh crying. I was crying. <laughs> I was crying. And, but I just kept crawling because I thought, I have to do this because I came out to do this. So I think that's part of it. You know, I'm an Enneagram seven and sevens are all in and ah. se- sevens have trouble knowing when to say when. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. You know, I think my superpower as a seven is I'm 110% in and sevens get in trouble because they don't know when to say enough. Yeah. Let's yeah. just stay here and drill down. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I try to do now. I just think, okay, just be and just go deeper and not have to just more and more and more and just go, go, go. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what I'm trying to do in this phase of my life. Be a healthy seven. Yeah. Not a, not a reckless crawling on my knees on Fifth Avenue seven. Yeah. Well, I'm also relating that to white supremacy, which might seem like a, <laughs> like a, a side door, but truly, I mean, I've been learning so much more about anti-racism and that cultural idea that we have, you know, is so celebrated that like, you know, look how you suffered and you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you did this on your own. That's, it truly is white supremacy as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I've not only grew up in a culture that celebrated achievement, I, you know, I've been an achiever. I'm sure you've been an achiever. And Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm a three, so I achieve the fuck out of everything I do. (laughs) You, you, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, right, you should have five podcasts by now, right? If you're, if you're three, I yeah, only have two, right? Okay, I'm a, okay, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. I love the enneagram. I love it. It's just so helpful to think of our strengths or our mm-hmm. weaknesses, and our superpowers or our kryptonite. That just mm-hmm. that's helped me so much in my evolution and also my work with patients. Hmm. Oh, yes. We here at uh, Conversations with the Wounded Healer love the Enneagram very much. So, yeah. Yeah. One other thing that has been coming to mind as we talk is you, as a psychiatrist who does psychotherapy, are kind of sort of a rare breed right now because a lot of a lot of people are just doing medication management. And so, I'm I'm curious your thoughts about the industry of psychiatry and and why the focus on med management and how you were able to break out of it. 
Yeah. So yeah, I have conflicting thoughts because part of me thinks psychiatrists absolutely should be doing psychotherapy because that's fundamental to healing. Mm -hmm. But then I also recognize that there's such a national shortage of psychiatrists that if everyone were working the model I'd I'm doing where I see patients for longer and I do a lot of therapy, it would be even worse. Mm-hmm. So I, I do understand why a lot of therapists, like, or why a lot of psychiatrists feel not just, a, I mean, I think people sort of diss the financial incentive. It's true. You're going to make more money if you see more people. But I think of, I know a number of psychiatrists who feel kind of a moral imperative mm-hmm. to do shorter sessions, more med management stuff, because there's just endless people who are trying to get in with psychiatrists. Yeah. So I used to be really down on the whole med check thing, thinking, okay, you're denying people one of the most important parts of therapy, but now, Mm -hmm. or of treatment in general. But now I understand, actually, it's probably good that there's a lot of psychiatrists. But I I don't know how they can see three or four people an hour. And I think what's happening Mm -hmm. is it's very symptom focused. Yeah. You know, a lot yeah. of psych- med management psychiatrists will give you a questionnaire and you just check, you know, your mm-hmm. sleep, your mood, mm-hmm. your libido. And they li- literally look at that. Hmm, what should we do with your Prozac? Hmm, you're looking right. at that. And that's so sad to me because, boy, when we're just symptom focused, mm-hmm. I mean, we want to help relieve symptoms, but man, we're missing the boat. Someone comes in, oh, your symptoms are all better. Oh, you're great. Good. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. I had a, attending a Brown who said, Focusing on symptoms is like saying, oh, I'm just going to try to bring people from negative five up to zero. He said, don't you want to try to give people up to like five or 10? Mm-hmm. Like to actually where they're growing and thriving and and having you know a meaningful connected life, not just, oh, I'm not having terrible insomnia. I'm not having libido problems. I'm not having constipation, but no, I'm actually thriving. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I get to work on my practice, try to bring people from negative five to six or negative two to four, mm-hmm. but bring them not just past symptoms, but towards, you know, more meaningful, connected functioning. And that goes back to what you said about, you know, depression specifically being a cluster of things that leads to then this one outcome, this one symptom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true with anxiety too. People throw that around, oh, I'm anxious, I'm depressed. Um, oh, yeah. But as, you know, as we know, all of us work in mental health, people who actually have very clinically significant anxiety, that's a different beast. Mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. that's not just um, I'm stressed. No, it's a it could be mm-hmm. incapacitating. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask if you had any like wonderful stories to tell in terms of resilience from clients, but you may want to actually save those for your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so fine if you want to say no. Oh, there's so many. Oh my gosh, where? How would we start? Oh yeah, I mean, here's I have so many stories like this, and this is why I love this work. Yeah, I see a woman who, you know, a few years ago she was working in the sex industry, shooting heroin and meth, and now she's finishing college. Oh wow! Yeah, and she's on scholarship, and she still is in and out of the drug world a little bit, but mm-hmm. mostly she's doing great. I mean, you know, when I mm-hmm. met her, she had felony charges, she was in and out of jail, and now she's mostly staying clean and she's getting her degree and she looks great taken by that how you can really look at people you just go to the waiting room like you can tell so much like once we get to know people it's almost like they don't have to talk like oh you're doing well or 
I know, Sarah, you love to work in addiction. I do a lot of addiction work. One of, and we had talked about this when we first connected. One of the things that's so great about working with addiction is when people are pulling out of it, wow, talk mm-hmm. about change. Talk about change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To see people literally, the scabs heal on people's faces and they gain weight and yep. they'll look you in the eye and they have a sparkle and they're talking about getting a dog and wanting yeah. to do things. And you think, oh my gosh, six months ago, you were knocking on death's door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And two, I've also been struck by the difference between someone who doesn't necessarily have the same trauma history recovering from addiction. Once they get sober and they do all the things they need to do to maintain sobriety, life gets better. But then when when significant trauma is part of the story, often there's, like I've witnessed with clients, there's kind of this wall that they hit. And until the trauma itself is truly addressed, I've actually seen a lot of decompensation and not even reverting back to substance use, but just not not being able to do functions of daily living, which has been so a good reminder because I, I know at least in social work training, we didn't, I didn't get any classes on trauma. You know, and I'm I'm glad now that there at least there's at least one trauma class in in schools, but we just we need to be talking about it more. We need to be educating the people who are on the front lines doing this work. Yeah, it's finally coming into medicine now where mm-hmm. across specialties that it's especially in family practice and pediatrics, it's becoming much more common to give the adverse mm-hmm. childhood event scale mm-hmm. and to help people understand that, oh, the reason you're struggling so much with chronic disease or disease so young is because of your trauma trauma history. And I see that a lot, especially with autoimmune disease and different chronic pain yeah. syndromes. It seems like almost inevitably when you look at people, you think, wow, why are you, you have so many medical problems. And then you do an ACE and you see, oh, your ACE is seven. Yeah. That was my yeah. mom's story. And she died at 62 of breast, of breast cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of the hour and I'm going to need to eat lunch at some point. So let's wrap it up. Anything, anything that you, we didn't talk about today that you really want to share with listeners? I guess I would say that for all the therapists listening, if you haven't had hard stuff happen yet in therapy, it's coming. I know as we talked about earlier, Sarah, a lot of people are drawn to mental health because of their own challenges or family experience. But for those of you who've been lucky enough not to have really hard things coming, it's going to happen. So find yourself some colleagues, a consult group, a therapist, get ready for the storm. So when it comes, the inevitable darkness that you're going to have the support you need. I didn't have that. I suffered through that for years. I have all those things now. But I think, again, I really think we sometimes can deceive ourselves like, oh, if we're good enough or careful enough that we can avoid awfulness. Mm, I don't think so. No, yeah. but we can get ready for it and and mm-hmm. have our support system and healthy ways ready for when it comes. That's excellent advice. Take it, everybody. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and would you like to share where people can find you and Back from the Abyss? Yeah, so Back from the Abyss is on all podcast platforms. And my website is Craig Heacock, M-D, C-R-A-I-G-H-E-A-C-U-C-K-M-D.com. We, we have a Back from the Abyss website, but it's folding slowly into my website, trying mm-hmm. to simplify that. Mm-hmm. So you can learn more about me and the podcast and check it out. I think if, if you like this podcast yeah. and you must because you're listening to it, I think you'll like mine and vice versa. I'm, I'm yeah. excited to introduce Sarah, your podcast to my people too. I think they're really going to like it. 
Yeah. No, that this is a lovely podcast friendship. <laughs> it is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing so deeply with us. Yeah, this is super meaningful. It's great to connect. Thanks so much, Craig, for joining us today. And again, don't forget to check our Conversations with a Wounded Healer feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever the hell you get your podcasts. Check in a couple of days because we're going to be sharing that episode of Back from the Abyss. Also, of course, you can find more information about Craig and Back from the Abyss on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, take care of yourself. Bye-bye.